Hi, this is David Flower, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This morning, we begin a new sermon series, Easter Encounters, a sermon series for Eastertide, which is what we call this time between Easter Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead and Pentecost Sunday when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples in the upper room after Jesus ascends to heaven to rule from there. That's what the Ascension is all about, as we'll see on Ascension Sunday. So our five-week series will end on what is known as Ascension Sunday on the church calendar, which is something we try to live into here at Grantham Church. I hope that you'll join us for our Easter encounters. We'll be looking at some of the experiences that the first disciples had with the risen Jesus. Specifically, we'll be reflecting on the lives and the encounters of Mary Magdalene and the empty, at the empty tomb, which we'll see today. Uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, which is what is depicted in this painting here, uh, the picture behind me. Uh, we'll also look at Thomas and his doubts. And then the risen Jesus eating breakfast by the Sea of Galilee, you remember that, and forgiving Peter for denying him. And then giving us the great commission when Jesus commands his followers, including you and me, to be disciples, to make disciples who make disciples. I expect that this series will challenge us in some ways, encourage us and others, and inspire our congregation to be Easter people, full of hope and expecting the unexpected because Jesus is alive and his presence and power are real. Amen? Amen. Before we go any further, would you join me in a quick word of prayer. Father, we open up our hearts to you now. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Jesus, we want to be more like you. We want to have fresh encounters with you. Help us to have one this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You guys ready this morning? Hearts are open. All right, here we go. As many of you know, there are four Gospels in the New Testament, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there are several reasons that we have four Gospels with both similarities and variations on the life and the ministry of Jesus. For example, they are each writing to different audiences, and so they have different pastoral and theological concerns in mind. And while it may seem strange to us for them to leave certain details out or to emphasize, even add something that another gospel doesn't, this is an accepted way of doing biographies in the ancient world and should also be expected when there are multiple eyewitnesses. Everybody tells the story a little bit differently. And of course, the gospel writers are aware of each other. 
right? So what might appear as contradictions are actually intentional literary moves by the authors to tell the Jesus story in such a way that fits with the larger themes, the motifs, and the message that they want to communicate to their specific audience. And we certainly see this in the accounts of the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. The synoptic gospels, that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call them the synoptic gospels, tell us that it was a small group of women who found the empty tomb. As you heard Pastor Tony just read earlier, John, he read from John, John is the last gospel writer, and in his typical fashion, he's not simply going to state the facts as if he were a private investigator reporting what was seen, but rather John tells the story in such a way as to present us with a high Christology. That means that John is very explicit in wanting us to know that Jesus is God. A high Christology, that's what we call that. And to highlight the experience of one woman. Because the synoptics tell us there were a group of women, but John wants us to think about the unique experience and the way that Mary of Magdalene processes this. She's Mary of Magdala, but she's known as Mary Magdalene. We've probably all heard that. To truly understand what's happening in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, and to make an attempt, you see, to enter into the experience that Mary had on the third day, we need to first know her backstory and recall her relationship to Jesus. And I want you to get ready because some of the things I'm going to say this morning may challenge some previous understandings that you have had of Mary Magdalene. Anybody watching The Chosen lately? You watching that? This is going to challenge a little bit of how that even portrays Mary Magdalene. But I think there is a message in this for us today, especially as Christians living in America. Who is Mary Magdalene? Well, let's start with Luke chapter 8. Luke gives us a little bit of background on her story, beginning with verses 1 through 3. Luke says, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another. We'll come back to the after this in just a moment. That was key. The 12 were with Jesus and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. <laughs> seven demons. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, and Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Go back to the verse 1 there, the beginning of that. After this, what is Luke talking about? After what? What had just happened? If you go back and look in chapter 7, the previous story is the episode of an unnamed prostitute barging into a meeting and meal that Jesus is having in the home of a Pharisee. And this woman weeps over Jesus' feet, washes his feet with her hair, and then pours expensive perfume out on the feet of God, right? And you remember the Pharisees, they don't like this. 
But Jesus accepts this woman and Jesus forgives this woman of her sins, something only God could do, which the Pharisees want to kindly remind Jesus of. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is like, well, yes, exactly. And I believe Mary, hear me, has been misidentified as this unnamed prostitute. Misidentified. This is just tradition. There's nowhere in the Gospels that say Mary of Magdalene was a prostitute. And you say, well, that, uh, there's a lot of sermons that we have to go back and edit or revise and and movies like The Chosen that we would need to do this. But fear not, Jesus accepts prostitutes. We don't need Mary Magdalene to be a prostitute. We need to go with the text. So what does the text actually say about Mary Magdalene? We're getting there. Notice here, Jesus includes women disciples with the 12. No rabbis had ever done this. You say, yeah, but Pastor David, there were still 12 men. Well, don't miss what Jesus is doing. The 12 men represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus sees himself fulfilling Old Testament Scripture. He's done this very intentionally. And normally, disciples would go and tap on the shoulder of the rabbi and say, can I follow you? And then they would make up their mind if they could, would let them do that. But Jesus chooses all of these guys, a ragtag group of ragamuffins, a speckled bird of a people who were all a mess and had competing visions of the kingdom of God and, and were in different occupations that didn't seem to go together, fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. Are you kidding me? Jesus chose these people. But he also chose women and said, follow me. You see, Mary was from Magdala. Magdala is a large port city on the Sea of Galilee known as a major center for processing and salting fish. Mmm, sounds good. You know, archaeology has revealed that Magdala was a posh place to live in the first century. Therefore, it's most likely that Mary was a wealthy woman. And she's grouped with other women of significant means. You see, that's key. We, we can't just, I know, assume that she was wealthy because she came from a wealthy city, but she's listed with a group of women who were wealthy and had lots of money. They were supporting Jesus. And she's included also with someone who is a part of aristocracy. Joanna is the wife of Cusa, who is a steward and manager in King Herod's house. I'd love to hear some more stories about that, how that went. We know how Herod felt about Jesus. But look, Luke tells us they all helped to finance Jesus' ministry and care for the needs of the disciples. So here's a summary of what I think we can know about Mary the Magdalene. We know that she is wealthy and influential. Even though women were limited in their opportunities in the first century, it seems that Mary had money, she had status, and she had the power to influence others. We also see, and it's quite obvious in Luke's gospel, that Mary was demonized. Mary had means, but she also had her demons. 
In fact, she had seven demons. And in the Bible, seven is a sign of totality and completion. You have to pick up on that, that the symbolism and, and what the Scripture is doing there. So like when Jesus cast out legion, you remember that? What's your name? The demon said legion, for we are many. It didn't necessarily mean that there were exactly three to 5,000 demons, because that's what a le Roman legion was. Rather, I think the gospel writers are trying to tell us that because of Im Roman imperialism, demonic influence had taken over this man. So in a similar way, maybe we're being told something about the kind of demonization that has happened here with Mary. She was thoroughly inhabited by evil. That was Mary. Also, some believe that these seven demons represent the seven deadly sins. Do you remember what those are? Now, you think about it. If she is from a posh city, she's a wealthy woman, and the polarities between wealth and poverty were great in that day. The seven sins are these, pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, anger, and sloth. Seems fitting for a life of someone who has great wealth and not following Jesus. And yet, we know this, Jesus healed her. Before Jesus, Mary's life was a hot mess. <laughs> and somehow, some way, her choices, her lifestyle, and her sins opened her up to the demonic, manifesting some form of demonization. And we need to know this, that in the New Testament, demonization takes several forms. It's not all foaming at the mouth, eyes rolling around in the head, and them speaking ancient Sumerian in a guttural voice, or spitting up green pea soup or something. Demonization takes many forms. There are different levels of it. And it can even look like mental illness. Now hear me clearly because a lot of fundamentalist churches have gotten this wrong. It doesn't mean that everyone who has a mental illness doesn't need medication, they need an exorcism. That's not what this means. But you understand that the New Testament recognizes there are overlaps and distinctions between demonization and sickness and illness and mental disease. But sometimes they overlap. We don't do well with this in our society, right? Because it's either left or right or black or white or medicine or exorcism. We just don't do well with this. But I think this is what the New Testament teaches us. And we need to be open to hearing that about Mary Magdalene this morning. Number four, we also know that because Jesus healed her, she followed Jesus and supported his ministry. As Luke told us, she joined a group of women who had means to support and resource the itinerant ministry of Jesus. So we're talking about she helped to provide for food and lodging. And do you ever think about this? Possibly renting out the upper room. Somebody's got to pay for that. What if the, the Last Supper is made possible because of Mary and these women? You ever think of that? Can't do ministry without that. Lastly, we know this. Jesus, when he was crucified, Mary was there. 
She was at the cross and was the first to encounter the risen Jesus on Easter. And when most followers fled the scene at the trial and crucifixion, she was one of several women who remained with John, the only male disciple who watched Jesus die. I think that that is significant. Don't you? And so she would be, we should be rather curious enough to ask the question, why Mary? Why did she have this Easter experience? And why was she the first to meet the risen Jesus? Maybe you're starting to see it. But before we explicitly answer that question, let's return to John chapter 20. If you have your Bible, you want to open up to John chapter 20, you can do that. I'm going to go verse by verse through this passage. So you can read along in your Bible or follow along on the screen. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, and you should know it's because of the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday morning that Jewish Christians stopped worshiping on Saturday and started worshiping on Sunday. While it was still dark, notice this, the darkness still covering the land, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed. Now the other gospel writers tell us, why is Mary going to the tomb? To finish preparing the body of Jesus. When Jesus was crucified on Friday, they had to rush his body off the cross into a tomb, could not properly prepare the body for burial. And so Mary has come back to finish the job. You can't work on the Sabbath. And so they had to wait until Sunday morning. So she came, verse 2, run, running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. And God, in John's gospel, that is a way of referring to himself, scholars believe. That'll become clear as you read the gospel why he's doing this. Also, I think maybe he wants us to insert ourselves in there. But John recognizes something the other disciples don't about Jesus and who Jesus is. And it shows up here even in this passage. She runs to Simon Peter, runs to John, the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. He understood this love of Jesus. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, she said, and we don't know where they have put him. Verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Why would he include this detail? You ever wondered that? Was, was Peter a hefty guy, you know? Like, is it really all that important who made it the tomb first? Have you ever thought about this? You know, those who are living with guilt and shame, particularly for those who've denied Jesus three times, they run a little slower. Not quite as committed, not quite as hopeful, maybe a little cynical. Verse 5, he bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in. But Simon Peter, he just barged on in. He came along, he went straight forward into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. If you look at the description of the other gospel writers, the idea here, what they're trying to describe is it was almost as if the body had just disappeared and the linen fell like a sheet, just right where it was. And yet the cloth around the head was wrapped up and folded nicely, separate from the rest. Now what grave robbers do that? 
You can imagine the puzzlement. Right? What, is, what is going on here? But immediately, John understands. Look at verse 8. Finally, the other disciple had reached the tomb. First also went inside. He saw and believed. Hmm. Isn't it interesting? Like John was at the cross with the women, the only male disciple at the, at the cross with the women, and he's the first at the tomb and the first to believe. Interesting. Suffering looks a little bit different when you're not in the middle of it, when you're looking from a distance. There's something faith-building about this experience that John and Mary and these women have had. They still didn't understand, though, that from the Scripture, Jesus had to rise from the dead. That'll click later. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now back to Mary, verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying which probably wasn't a good idea if you think about it. I mean, Roman soldiers are supposed to guard this tomb. If you've not seen the movie Risen, you should watch that. Uh, it, it's a fictional story. Uh, follows a Roman uh, centurion who is, com- is commissioned to assign soldiers to this tomb. And, the, the, of course, what happens is the tomb is found empty. The soldiers are missing. And uh, if, if you know your history, Roman soldiers who fail on the job get death. So they wake up after this experience. They flee. Everybody flees the scene of this crime, but Mary hangs around. Kind of dangerous, yet she does it because Mary needs to grieve. As she wept, she bent over, she looked into the tomb, she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. You say, why do I care about that? John is all concerned about Old Testament fulfillment and imagery. This is a picture of the cherubim, the angels, on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was where heaven met earth. It's where God forgave sins through the shedding of the blood over that ark. Jesus is this. Isn't that beautiful? That's another sermon. Let's keep going. Verse 13, they asked her, woman, why are you crying? Look what she says. They have taken my Lord away. They have taken my Lord away away. And I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. The Gospels tell us this. We'll see this next week with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. There was something about the resurrected body of Jesus that was different, but there's also something else they want us to know. Seeing Jesus for who he is is a spiritual revelation. And there's an invitation here that we would have our eyes opened and see Jesus for who he really is. That we would have an encounter. That we would have an awakening. Just as Mary does here. Look at verse 15. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. Now this is kind of funny because in a way Jesus is. Earlier in John's gospel, he tells us, He's the vine. His disciples are the branches as they're walking through the garden. Also, things went awry in a garden. 
new creation happens at the garden tomb. In a way, Jesus is the gardener. It's beautiful. Sir, she says, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. So at least Mary can grieve properly. And then look what happens, verse 16. Then she knows. Jesus said to her, Mary, Miriam, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now you've got to think and ask this question, what was it about Jesus calling her name that she recognized him? And earlier in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. That's what shepherds would do. They would name their sheep. And so when the shepherd called their name, the sheep would respond, here he is, Jesus, calling Mary by name. And Mary recognizes. John wants us to recognize when Jesus is speaking to us. He can open our eyes too if we'll follow him just as Mary did. In this passage, notice Mary calls him my Lord and the Lord, but also teacher. Jesus can be all of those. Mary obviously reaches for her Lord and teacher and attempts to embrace him. This is the image, then the picture that we get, because look at Jesus' response. Verse 17, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Now, why does Jesus say this? Jesus isn't being insensitive. He loves Mary. He's just turned her grief into gladness. And she is the first he chose to reveal himself. He loves Mary. So why did he tell her not to cling to him? Look at this. It's because they both have urgent assignments to fulfill. He is saying to this brave female disciple, Mary, this experience is momentary. It's good, but momentary. There's still ministry to be done. More good things, even challenging things to do. And you must go tell the rest of my disciples that I'm about to start reigning and ruling from heaven by the authority of God the Father. Imagine the surprise. Imagine her elation. Imagine the blood pressure is rising. The hope is swelling up inside of her. Jesus was dead and now he is alive. This changes everything. And then she leaves the empty tomb to be the first to testify and proclaim the good news of the resurrection. Don't say that women can't preach. Mary's the first bearer of the good news that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And they believed every word. What a story. What a story. And one that you wouldn't tell this way in the ancient world unless it were true because it's so embarrassing to ancient audiences. After all, if you want to convince people that Jesus was raised alive and that others should believe it and follow him, you don't have the first witness being a woman. Not in the first century. And a woman who was once filled with demons. A woman whose testimony wouldn't even be considered in a court of law. Yet she is the first to encounter the risen Jesus and to testify to his resurrection. Folks, you only tell it that way if it happened that way. 
Ah, the credibility in this story. So again, why Mary? Why did she have this Easter experience? And why was she the first to meet the risen Jesus? Well, for a few reasons. Here they are. Number one, she was grateful. She showed gratitude. And look at this. You would too if you were aware of what Christ had done for you. If Jesus had cast out seven demons and set your, right, your life right and on the path to holiness, you would too. You see, Jesus had healed her and nothing else remained the same for her. Whatever lucrative business she had, whatever she spent her money on, mostly on herself it would seem, had changed when she encountered Jesus. She showed gratitude by investing in Jesus' ministry and the work of the kingdom because that's how it works. You see, when you're grateful, you don't just say, oh, I'm a grateful person. No, you show that you're grateful. You seek to be a blessing. You seek to be a blessing. You've heard the saying, put your money where your mouth is. Well, that was Mary. As we heard from Luke, Mary lived that way. Number two, she has this Easter encounter because she was faithful. She was faithful. She showed her faithfulness in a number of ways. Whenever Jesus went, she was there. When Jesus taught, she was there. When Jesus healed someone, she was there. You see, Mary showed up. She showed up, and she was content doing her work behind the scenes. It didn't matter to her. She wasn't in for the glory and the fame. She was there to serve the Lord, the one who saved her and changed her, freed her from her demons, and gave her a joy that her swank life and Magdala never could. Mary was grateful. Mary was faithful. Even after Jesus had died, she still desired to serve him. Why was she at the tomb? To finish preparing Jesus' body for burial. And she didn't care who saw it. She didn't even mind that she put her own life in danger to do it. She wasn't just in the right place at the right time, church. She was faithful. And that's why Jesus met her first. Why does Mary have this Easter encounter number three? This will sound familiar from our Lent series. She was resilient. She showed resilience. Think about this. Clearly, Mary didn't let her past, being rich and demonized, determine her future or define her. She refused to be known by her money or her monsters. She refused to be known by her money or her monsters. She was not the same person, and she believed it. She has a new identity. She wasn't stuck in the past, and she refused to be a victim because she knew that you can't be a victim and a victor at the same time. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. You can't be a victim and a victor at the same time. And she also didn't let being a woman who was viewed as a second-class citizen in the first century stop her from living into her God-given potential. And look, not in an arrogant, mean-spirited way. We got to put men down in order to lift women up. It wasn't like that. It was this Galatians 3.28 idea. All are one in Christ. She had a new identity, and then in a Christ-empowered, the Lord has set me free and made me equal with the boys sort of way. Mary was resilient. I think of, uh, sometimes I like Jesus movies because they, they go off script and they, they start to explore some things that we might imagine would have happened or how they would have, the disciples have responded, like when Mary comes back and tells them what had happened. And, and then this movie, Jesus of Nazareth from the 70s, you know, there's some things I don't like about it. Jesus is very stoic. He, when he moves, his body kind of floats, you know. It, 
But the one thing I really like, when Mary goes and tells the disciples that he had, he had risen, they look at her, at, at this incredulous look. Almost like, Mary, go have some wine and lay down. But Mary is resilient. She said, you don't believe me? Why should he not appear to me? As if to say, I was there at the cross, where were you? I was there at the empty tomb, where were you? You see, folks, if we want Easter encounters, we have to show up. We can't run, we can't flee, we can't quit. When it's hard and when times are dark, we have to be there, we have to be faithful. Because when we skip out and then we come back after the hard times are over, we still have a lot of work to do. Because we've not built the faith in the process through those dark times. Some of you may know this. I'm preaching. Lastly, number four, she has this encounter because she was courageous. As I said, Mary didn't let her past or her gender hinder her from boldly following Jesus. But also consider this, she didn't let the opinions of her rich friends back in Magdala stop her from following the one who had changed her. Think about the courage it took to leave that life behind. Her comfort, her privilege, her uppity friends. My wife and I, we lived in an affluent community in the northern suburbs of Houston. We know what that's like. We've seen it. We've experienced it when the students drive up to school in BMWs kind of attitudes that Mary must have encountered, but she overcame it, and she, 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 she overcame it, and she was resilient, and she was courageous, and she, she did it to follow the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. She believed it. And of course, the most courageous things we see that Mary uh, did was at the end of the narrative. We see it in her willingness to be present at the foot of the cross and watch her Lord and Savior be brutally executed. She showed up in her Lord's darkest moment, Except for John and a few other women, everyone else, as we said, had fled. They ran and hid for fear that they too would be rounded up and crucified as accomplices of Jesus. Oh, but not Mary. No, not Mary. She wouldn't leave her Lord because she, because he had never left her. She wouldn't leave her Lord because he had never left her. And and then we see her courage early that morning as she went to the tomb and found it empty. She's essentially at the scene of a crime, but she doesn't run away. She remains, and she thought the worst was over, but here she is now weeping in the dark because her one true love, her Lord, was gone. But then... It was there in the darkness. There in the darkness, don't miss that. In the early morning that Mary meets the risen Jesus. And I can't help but think of Psalm 30, a psalm that I think can speak to Mary's encounter. Listen to these words. The psalmist writes, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up. Have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you, and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. 
Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Maybe you need joy to come in the morning for you. Maybe you need an Easter encounter with Jesus. Folks, look at the life of Mary. This is how it happens. This is how it happens. Finally, here are a few questions for reflection and response this morning. Think about these with me. What is God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? Number one, is your faith in need of a fresh Easter encounter with Jesus? What can Mary's life instruct you and guide you in on and responding to Jesus this morning? Number two, how is the Spirit speaking to you through her life and witness? What in this message really jumps out at you and sticks in your mind and in your heart? And the Lord's saying to you, pay attention to that. And then lastly, number three, will you respond to God's grace in your life just as Mary did? This amazing grace that led her to be grateful, faithful, resilient, and courageous. May we be like Mary. Father, we thank you for Mary's life for her story, her testimony, her witness. You saved this woman, you changed her, and you rewarded her for her commitment to you and to your disciples. May we follow in her footsteps this morning. Give us the strength to respond to you with obedient hearts. For the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.